if it's true that we can use less water and also get a dual purpose from the land, you know, mm-hmm. get regenerative agriculture and organic food out of there, plus renewable energy and use less water. It's just like, that is a win-win-win. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. In this episode of Voices from the Field, Stacy Peterson, the Energy Program Director of the National Center for Appropriate Technology, talks with Meg Cayley, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Colorado nonprofit Sprout City Farms. Sprout City Farms began in 2010 with a vision of increasing food access and community resiliency through farming underutilized urban land. Among its partnerships, Sprout City Farms works with Jack's Solar Farm in Longmont, Colorado, growing crops in spaces between solar panels at the site, which is the largest agrivoltaic research facility of its kind in the United States. Let's listen. Hi, and welcome to Voices from the Field. I'm NCAT Energy Program Director Stacy Peterson, and I'd like to welcome Meg Cayley to the show. Meg is the co-founder and executive director of Sprout City Farms. Sprout City Farms builds educational urban farms in the Denver area to engage communities, strengthen neighborhood resiliency, and root farmers in the city. Meg has a passion for bringing people together in the field and around the table, growing food and communities simultaneously. Sprout City Farms is at several locations in the Denver area, including Jack's Solar Garden, which is the nation's largest agri-solar site with vegetable production. I had the good fortune of seeing Meg's work in person in September during the Follow the Sun tour, where we had a night touring Jack's Solar Garden, celebrating the harvest and promoting agri-solar. Meg, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So can you tell us a little bit about how Sprout City Farms started farming at Jack's? Yes, we as a nonprofit got started in the Denver metro area farming underutilized urban land. So places like schoolyards and public parks and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And because the there's a few reasons why Jack Solar Garden fits into our mission. Um, and the first one is because the land under solar panels is typically also underutilized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, you know, it was another space that we saw that we could bring a food producing oasis into that, into that realm. So we were excited about that. We also, because we're a nonprofit, we have a big focus on education and farmer training and just being able to build up a network in whatever program we're, we're running. So I think it's a really good space for us to be able to come in and kind of trailblaze and try to crack the nut of growing different varieties of food crops under solar panels, because no one has done that in this country at production scale. And it's um, really hard to convince you know, farmers who are really watching razor thin margins, they're really watching their bottom line. If they don't know if it's going to be a profitable venture or not, how could they take the risk of, you know, building a new operation like that with no information? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's wonderful that you're you're trailblazing and, and doing that work for them. What, what type yeah. of crops are you growing? We this year grew so 2021 was our first season of production, but because of construction delays with the retention pond for the irrigation system and a a host of other things with construction projects. (laughs) Um, We had a partial season. We, we finally got water and were able to get planted 
um, in late June, early July in 2021. So we saw a partial season last year, and then 2022 was our first full season. And so in 2021, we had a little more of a scattershot approach of like, let's try to grow a sort of typical diversity of crops for us, you know, just kind of everything from onions to tomatoes and put them where we think that they would like to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we put the tomatoes in the sunniest areas, you know. But this year we really wanted to buckle down on our partnership with the research team at University of Arizona because running a research farm is really different than running a farm. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, it was like twofold. University of Arizona needed help scaling up their research methodologies for it to work in production scale agriculture and not just be measuring everything like by each individual plant and that kind of thing. And then we needed help figuring out how to do research alongside production. So we helped each other kind of forge the way this year and and what kind of methods we needed to use and what we needed to track and stuff like that. So this year we did much less diversity of crops so that we could sort of hone in on the standard operating procedures that we needed to create. Um, So we grew about 15 different things this year. We grew stuff like typical Colorado crops like potatoes and dry beans and melons. But then we also wanted to look at root crops like beets and carrots Um, some leafy greens like salad mixes, head lettuce, cooking greens, um, and then also some crops that are really valuable for a typical market farmer like peppers and tomatoes. So that was kind of the breadth of what we grew this year. Great. Yeah, I I ate several of them during the the tour and and they were delicious. Do Do you find that the shade from the solar panels impacts your crop yield? That is something that we are studying. So the folks at NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, did a sun and shade study, you know, using the angle of the sun throughout the year and things like that, of how much shade is created in each production area. So essentially, we have these rows of solar panels. They're about 17 feet in between them, and we can fit three production beds in each lane in between those rows of solar panels. And each of those three beds gets a different amount of sun and shade throughout the day. So the westernmost uh, bed is the shadiest, the one in the center is the sunniest, and then the easternmost bed is shadier, but not quite as shady as the other side. (laughs) So to get really, to drill down and see how well these crops would do with those varying amounts of sun and shade, we put like, for example, tomatoes in each of the three beds. And as we pruned and harvested throughout the season, we tracked which yield came from which bed. So we'll know by the end of the season when we do all our number crunching, what the difference in yield was, uh, depending on how much sun and shade that they got. And some of the crops did, as we expected, like root crops and leafy greens are cold season vegetables. They like the shade better. Um, So, you know, we kind of knew going in that some of those typical colder season, um, you know, shade loving crops were going to do just fine and probably have higher yields than what we see at our our typical full sun fields. But the jury's still out on the sun loving crops. So we're really interested to see the final end of the season numbers on solanacea crops like tomatoes and peppers 
and if they had a reduced yield or not. Because last year, we only had the partial season, like I said. So that's the caveat. But we thought throughout the season that they were growing slower than we expected. But then when we looked at yields at the end of the season, it seemed like they were pretty much on par with what we would expect. So it was like it caught up by the end of the year. <laughs> so did did you see a difference in the amount of water needed because of the shade or is it pretty similar or is that something you're tracking as well? Yeah, the water is another thing that I'm really excited to be looking at. So we had multiple little plots all around the field, which is also why <laughs> we had to get acclimated to running a research farm. Like not all, all of our tomatoes are in the same place. <laughs> So we had a control plot, which is in the same field, but gets full sun. It's not underneath the solar panels. Then we had the same amount of, I'll just keep going with tomatoes, for example, Mm -hmm. the same amount of row feet of the tomatoes planted in the control plot under the panels. And then we took another area and reduced the irrigation on all of those crops by 50% so that we could also measure if there's greater soil moisture retention because of the increased shade, can we water them less? And that is going to have huge implications for the arid West. You know, we've been in a severe drought. It's only going to get worse. Yes. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that was what the the University of Arizona research team, that was one of their initial findings down in Tucson was Mm -hmm. that they could cut their irrigation by half and get the same plant growth and yield. So that's something we're studying and it's going to take a few years, I think, before we can really say, but we really want to see if that same result will translate to the Colorado climate, which is quite different from Tucson. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, when I, when I saw Greg Baron Gafford's work down in, down in Tucson at Biosphere and Monzo, I was so impressed with the water reduction and it'll, it'll be really good to have a couple of years of data and be able to see how that proves out around the West. I think that has really huge implications. Yeah, it's one of those environmental factors that, you know, if if it's true that we can use less water and also get a dual purpose from the land, you know, mm-hmm. get regenerative agriculture and organic food out of there plus renewable energy and use less water. It's just like, that is a win, win, win. <laughs> it is. I couldn't agree more. So it, it, this summer we went and we toured around and, you know, it was very hot. It was summer. And I noticed that everyone tended to hunt, huddle underneath the solar panels, kind of like the sheep do. And, you know, we were all just trying to hide from the sun because it was just so hot. And so we started doing skin temperature tests and we we used a FLIR and, and we, would, we used an infrared and we saw about a 10 degree temperature drop on skin. Um, if you were underneath the panel. And I was wondering, do you see that at Jack's as well? And what what is the implication, if so, with farm workers? Yes. And Stacey, I'm so glad that y'all are tracking that because it's one of these things that is a little harder, I think, to measure and and do a study on, but it has huge implications for farm worker health because there's so much... Uh, heat exhaustion yes. you know, that happens yeah. out in the fields. And yeah, I mean, so just my little anecdote from Jax is that when we're planning the work plan for the day, oftentimes, especially when we have multiple people working there, 
we try to make a plan to work like on one side, you know, in the morning and on the other side in the afternoon so that we can be in the shade because it makes such a difference the way you feel. You have more energy throughout the whole day if you're not in the full sun. And at our elevation, yeah, there's a huge difference (laughs) between the sun and the shade. Yeah. So it's actually one of the things my husband loves to talk about the most when we're going <laughs> up to Jack's. He's like, oh yeah, today we're going up to Jack's. I get to work in the shade all day. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just a, everywhere we go, everybody just goes under those panels. So I got to thinking that had to, had to have be good for farm workers. Yeah. And there's nowhere else where you could actually contrive an atmosphere like that. You know, all the right. other farm fields are going to be in full sun. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what they're doing. So I'm wondering a little bit about the market value. So do you think that there's an added market value uh, to your crops if they're grown at Jack Solar Garden or if if a, if a specialty crop was grown at an agri-solar site? Do you think there's an added market value for that? I think in terms of consumer opinions and stuff like that, that'll kind of remain to be seen. But the one thing that we feel pretty good about going into next season is we'll have a corner on the market for out of season crops, like lettuce in July, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be impossible to have not bitter tasting salad greens. (laughs) Yeah. They'll all bolt. For most farms. Yeah. In the heat of the summer. So I think it's more that we'll be able to extend the season all year for those colder season vegetables and be able to distribute them when no one else really has them. That's great. Learn how to harvest the sun twice with practical information at NCAT's AgriSolar Clearinghouse. Get access to more than 400 peer-reviewed articles, the latest in AgriSolar news, and connect with farmers and solar developers who are working together to make the most out of our shared resources. We'll see you at agrisolarclearinghouse.org. So switching gears a little, I know community building is a really important aspect of your work, and it's it's a really important aspect of what we do too. So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about ways in which you build community at Jack's and at your other Sprout City Farms. Yeah, and um, before I forget, because this is another reason that we wanted to partner at Jack's that I didn't mention earlier is the farmer training side of things. So I'll start there. We have been looking for a while for a farm site that would be large enough for us to be able to allocate some land for incubator plots for aspiring, young, beginning, second generation, first generation, second career farmers. There's all these different categories that people can fall into. (laughs) But basically, access to land to test out your business plan is one of the absolute biggest barriers to people entering agriculture as a career and being able to be successful once they do launch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've heard this from our past interns and apprentices over the years since we got started in 2010. We've had over 120 different new farmers work with us in our our urban farms. Mm -hmm. And there's a really big jump you have to make between working for somebody for a season or two on their operation, and then going and starting your own project and finding the land to be able to do it, all the capital upfront that's needed to install infrastructure and get tools and set up an irrigation system and wash station and cold storage and all of these things. It's like, it's almost insurmountable when you add all of that up. (laughs) And because 
like, I think it's something like 90% of the agricultural lands in this country are going to change hands in the next 20 years because of farmers retiring and not having succession plans. We really need to work on training up the next crop of farmers. Yeah. <laughs> like what's going to happen to our food system if there's nobody stepping in, you know, to those mm-hmm. shoes. So we've been trying for a long time to figure out where we could have an incubator farm. And so initially we knew that we wanted to have some incubator farm plots at Jack's just for anybody who, you know, has a few seasons of production experience and wants to go their own, but needs like sort of the training wheels and and some of the mentorship environment still Mm -hmm. um, and access to all of the resources that we can provide because we've already set up a farm there, you know, Mm -hmm. But now that we've worked there for a couple of seasons, we've realized that there's another group of folks that could really be served by having access to a plot to test out their business plan. And that is folks that specifically may want to build an agrivoltaics project because it's like farming in an obstacle course. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, quite different from just an open field. So there's a lot of little quirks to the system and, and, and we feel really strongly that if farmers want to undertake a project like this, it would really behoove them to come and work with us and, and see the site and get familiar with it before they go whole hog, you know, and set something up. So I think there's a couple different groups of people that might be interested in being able to have a plot there and, you know, kind of get, get going in that way. So that's sort of the farmer community side of things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then to answer your question about just how do we connect with our communities in general, we really try to allocate a good portion of our harvest to food access programs for our local communities. So down in Denver and Lakewood, where we've had farms for over a decade now, we do 55% of our harvest is uh, distributed to lower income households through no cost CSA shares, where they get a weekly share of food from the farm. We supply local school cafeterias for Title I schools. We do farm stands that are uh, using suggested pricing models. So it's sort of donation-based. We just want to break down barriers to accessing healthy food for folks. So if they want to come get the food, we just want them to have it. (laughs) Um, And then we also donate to local food pantries. So we've been starting to set that up at Jack's. We are working with some partners up there in Longmont. The Boulder County Farmers Market Group does no-cost CSA shares for folks with the Women with Infants and Children program. So that's for qualifying households. They It's similar to the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which used to be called Food yeah. Stamps. So we are working with the Farmers Market Association to get food every week to CSA shares for WIC families. And then we also have a food pantry in Longmont called the Hour Center, where we are donating a portion of the harvest as well. And then we're also actually growing some things. I forgot to mention this earlier too. We're so excited about how well the greens are doing (laughs) that we decided to grow all of our kale and Swiss chard and collard greens and cabbage and things of that nature at Jack's for our other food distribution programs. So we didn't grow any cooking greens at our other farms this year because we were like, why would we even try? (laughs) (laughs) When we grow them under the solar panels, they're like five times the size, you know, Um, you got a longer season. Yep. Yep. 
So we are actually sending some of the harvest from the solar farm through our food access channels uh, in the city as well. Excellent. So yeah, and then we do other things too beyond food access um, and community engagement. We do workshops and volunteer days and uh, just events for folks to come and hang out on the farm and get to know the farmers and just kind of see their local food system in action. So as we continue to build out the programming at uh, at Jax, we will introduce a lot more of those community event type elements too. We've had a great number of volunteers this year that have helped a lot. <laughs> great. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with with the, with the party you guys had, the harvest party at the end of the year. That was excellent community engagement. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, right? Yeah, it was. Let's see. So do you think that there's potential for this all around the country? Or do you think that Denver has, you know, your area has more supportive policies and you have more of a, you know, a a niche market there because your community might be more supportive of it? You know, that is a good question. And I haven't been as involved on the policy side. Byron Kamenek, who's the owner of Jack's Solar Garden and lives on the land and it's named after his grandpa. (laughs) He worked really closely with Boulder County to get a lot of those policies changed so that the solar array of that size could be installed because previously it wouldn't have been allowed. So I, I don't know as much about the policy side. I still have a lot to learn in that realm, but I just think about climate and knowing that we have, you know, something ridiculous, like an average of 360 days of sun (laughs) here in the West, and that we struggle with arid conditions and that, you know, part of the microclimate that's created under the solar panels is that there's more moisture retention and, you know, some reduction in temperatures and the heat of the day and things like that. I think it's just really well suited based on what we know right now. And of course we have more that we'll be learning, but based on what we know right now, it just seems like the agrivoltaic system is perfect for the West. (laughs) And it's probably, I mean, I would still advocate for it in cloudier, wetter environments because you still get the co-location of food production or ecosystem services with the energy production. But it just seems like we're also uniquely primed for creating this uh, microclimate and energy and food production altogether out here in the West. Yeah, I agree, especially considering the water. So what advice would you give to a farmer that is wanting to to learn more about agrosolar and, and, and wants to do this? What, what would you say? I mean, I, I think your point is well made that they should come in and, and work with you all and, and, and see what it's like to farm in an obstacle course. Um, <laughs> any Any advice beyond that? Yeah, first come see us. (laughs) You'll get an earful. We're just, yeah, we're learning so much as we go. And there's things that we couldn't have anticipated until we started working in that space, you know? So we have a lot of little lessons learned about the layout and how the field is designed. I think for groups that are focused on agriculture and want to introduce the solar array component, you know, they'll be able to design it around functionality for the farm. Whereas Mm -hmm. what what we did was we inherited a solar array that we squeezed the farm underneath, you know? (laughs) So the field at Jack's was designed for maximum energy production. And they did raise the panels up six, uh, six feet off the ground. And in some places in the field, it's eight feet off the ground. 
so that humans, you know, it's a human scale place we can work under there. But there's a lot of design changes that we would introduce if we were starting from scratch and able to design it more around just the agricultural stuff. So just layout, accessing the field, where the water's dripping off of the panels and where you have your pathways and beds and things like that is, is of consideration. But then, you know, we're still thinking about what crops might do best in that scenario. And we want to share out all of our results, you know, as we have them come in so that people can plan more of the market farm side of things or decide to graze animals, you know, whatever is going to work better. Another thing with laying out a farm uh, under solar panels that really needs a lot of consideration for folks that are mechanized is the size of their implements and their equipment and making sure that they can design the solar panels to be far enough apart so that they can fit everything in there. One of the reasons, another reason that we were well suited to work at Jack's is that uh, Sprout City Farms is no till and we're used to being human scale. You know, we just use broad forks to prep our beds. We don't use tractors. Right. So uh, our operation was able to fit, you know, pretty nicely underneath there. Whereas someone that is mechanized and needs to use a lot of equipment and implements, they'd have to design things pretty differently to make sure that it all fit together. <laughs> yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. So I don't know. We have a lot of thoughts about <laughs> the layout, what to grow, only hire short people. No, just kidding. <laughs> Liza and I are the main folks up there a lot of days and we're both, you know, just five feet and a few inches. Yeah, so that's all we're lucky that way. <laughs> that's funny. Well, where could folks go to learn more and, and connect with you? Um, what, what would be a good website or a, a good contact for you? Yeah. So Sprout City Farms is on the web at sproutcityfarms.org. We are also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, things like that. We're still working on our, our YouTube presence. But yeah, our website is a great starting place and all of our contact info is there. You can also see how to learn more and support. <laughs> we are a nonprofit. I always have to put that plug in. Yep. I'm um, a nonprofit, so I understand. Yep. <laughs> great. And then I, I think too, folks could also look at the Jack Solar Garden website and we'll, we'll put links to this uh, with the podcast. And, and you could also look at the Colorado, the Coagrivoltaic Learning Center site has a lot of great information. Um, well, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me today, Meg. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to coming back to Jack soon. Yes, we hope to see you out here soon, Stacy. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate being able to share our story. Right. And there's so more to come. All right. <laughs> thanks so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.